Numb of Thee Above. That's the title of Dr. Hunter's message today. From the New American Standard, he selected Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter for his message, Numb of the Above. Again, remind you of the context of this message and of this series. We are on a ten-year journey towards spiritual maturity. Each year we are taking a theme that will allow us to mature in Christ. But we don't rush on just to other spiritual principles. We want these themes to be so oft-repeated that they make themselves evident in our character. And we are preaching this year about adversity. We believe that God allows limitation in our life in order to bring about maturity, in order to bring about a greater good. We happen to be in this section of this theme that is about work, about the limitations that we experience most often at work. But they are not just about work because these same limitations are those that evidence themselves in all the rest of our lives. We just see them usually first at work. Now, I want to read to you this fifth chapter, uh, beginning with the 13th verse of Ephesians. And I want you to see, as I read, the theme here is awake. Because Satan has a tendency to be able to take every good thing we have and to be able to deteriorate that particular thing into something bad. Now, patterns are good in life. Discipline, consistency, stability, all of those are good things. If you had to figure out an original approach to every problem that you have, you would go stark raving mad. If you had to start over new every day, you would go crazy. So there is something to consistency and faithfulness and a patterned behavior to the world. There's something good about that. But watch what Satan does. He takes that thing, he takes that pattern, and he allows it to become so mechanical that we literally can fall asleep doing. We can fall asleep spiritually doing. That's called routine. Living in a routine. Now look at what it says in verse 13. It says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Now here's what I want you to get right off the bat. There are things in your life that if you don't take note of them will literally pass you by. They're, they're, they're in the shade. And if you are not paying attention, you will totally miss them. That's a reference here. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Otherwise, you can't really see them. You don't really see them. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, 
and arise from the dead. Now, this particular uh, passage is not an Old Testament uh, reference. Rather, they think it is a verse out of an early baptismal hymn of people who are being baptized and rising up out of the out of the water, the awake sleeper, out of the land of the dead into the land of the living. But I want you to know this isn't being preached to new converts. This is the church at Ephesus. These people are Christians and have been Christians for a while. This is being told to disciples. And he still says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Therefore, there must be a way that we get dead in some sense, even though we are believers. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, this is a favorite thing, one of the favorite themes of Paul. You can look back just across the page to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called. So he's saying, walk worthy. Walk in a way that is wise. Making the most of your time. I like the King James even better. It says, redeeming the time. Remember that phrase. We're going to come back to that. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. I'll explain what that means in a minute. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There is a kind of life that all of us can live that is so mechanical, it literally sucks the passion out of our existence. There is a kind of religion that all of us can have that is so mechanical, it literally sucks the intimacy out of our relationship with God. When I was little, I, when, I, when I was younger, I'm still little, I've got to remember that. When I was younger, I think I've told you this before, I loved scary movies. And I used to watch that, I used to love to get scared. Now, you have to understand that when I was young, scary movies didn't have the same technology that they have these days. They were, all of them were grade B and C scary movies. The first scary movie I ever watched was The Mole People. Well, you remember that, The Mole People? This was so bad, you could see the zippers in the back of their costumes. Literally. They'd, they'd walk around, you know, they'd come up out of the ground and grab people and they'd walk around like this. You could see the zippers in the back of their costumes. Still scared me to death. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. There was another scary movie that absolutely fascinated me even more, though. I think it was made in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, some of you may have seen it. Let's, let's do. I like to do this Jeopardy thing. Scary movies for two hundred. <laughs> the answer is, movie made in nineteen sixty, where aliens come from pods and take over human bodies. Ah, invasion of the body snatchers. Very good. Now, now we're going here. You remember seeing that movie? For those of you who did not see it, it was the it was the it was the most fascinating thing. Because these humans would be taken over by aliens. And they looked perfectly normal. 
There were no telltale signs on their bodies, except if you could look back and right under their hairline, they had a little, I can't remember what it was, a little device or hole or something, you know. Um, but other than that, they looked perfectly normal. Except they had this vacant stare. Remember? And the fascination, the suspense of the movie was to watch one after another person get taken over by these things while everybody around him didn't realize it. I mean, a husband would come home and say something perfectly normal like, Hi, honey, what's for supper? And she'd say, she'd say, We are having ham for supper. It will be ready in a minute. Please wash your hands. And he'd say, Okay. And just go and wash your hands. And you're sitting there going, Oh, one got her! She's an alien! What the? And you couldn't figure out why? The husband never noticed. How is it that he can look at a wife going like this? Never notice she's an alien. When you knew it, it was perfectly evident to you. One of the reasons I was so fascinated by that movie is because I grew up in Shelby, Ohio, where nothing ever happened. 75% of the population in that town looked like that all the time. <laughs> I used to go around looking for things along their hairline and wonder if they got a dot, you know. The whole town seemed like that to me. But it was such a bad movie. The script was bad. The plot was stupid. And you wonder why it was so popular. I'll tell you why it was so popular. Because the allegory was accurate. All of us can tend to get so routine in life that our personality is sucked out of us. All of us can tend to live empty, vacuous, mechanical lives. All of us can cease to be the people we originally were because of routine. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember when you first anticipated entering into the work field? Do you remember dreaming about your job, what you would do when you got older? Do you remember the idealism that you had? Someday I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to save people's lives. It's going to be so great. I mean, I'm going to rush in and I'm going to, I'm going to revive them. Get them going again. They're going to wake up and say, Oh, thank you for saving my life. The hospital will be so glad to have me. I'll be so happy in my work. Someday I'm going to work in a company. And I'll work so hard and I'll be so good. They'll promote me to president in three weeks. Someday I'm going to make a difference in the workplace. Remember that? Is that kind of how it's turned out? Most of us, for very good reasons, have gone into work and have settled into a routine, having a list of things we're trying to do that day, very focused. And slowly we lose our idealism. Slowly the passion to make a difference gets left by the wayside or drained out of us from the daily activities. Slowly, we just look at work and say, I'll accomplish this today. Or we look at our schedule and say, this is what I have to do tomorrow. And slowly, we begin to 
think of life as what happens after work. It's what happens on the weekends or at night. Because our work has gotten so mechanical and so routine. You know what? The same thing happens to your marriage. Or to a friendship that you have. You say to yourself when you're young, someday I'll have somebody to love me. And I'll love them and we'll be crazy nuts about each other. Let's just take marriage. I know a good number of you are single, but let's, you still have those dreams. I suspect 90% of you. Someday I'm going to find somebody. And we're going to, I mean to tell you, we'll be crazy. We'll be making out everywhere. <laughs> I mean, we'll go to the grocery store, make out in the parking lot. I mean, it's going to be great. We'll sneak off from the kids, make out in the kitchen. We'll say, go outside play. <laughs> then you got married. And because of the realistic demands and pressures of family life, because of the realistic demands of raising children, slowly you divvied up the jobs. And slowly you assumed the role. And slowly you found yourself working beside a person you hadn't had an intimate conversation with for months. And one day, she says something that is so strange, you think to yourself, this isn't the person I married. When did she change? And there's a strong indication that it's been a while since you have listened to her. Do you remember when you first believed in the Lord? And you were so grateful for the grace. When it was your whole life, and you said, oh God, use me. Wherever you want me, I'll go. I don't care, just use me. I just want to be used. Thank you that you have forgiven me. I was such a wretch. I've been a wretch all my life. I'll be a wretch all my life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving me from hell. Been a while since you heard that word? Do you remember when you believed in hell? Have you believed in hell? Jesus believed in hell. I know what Vernon was saying was true. That there is a side to God that wants to relieve us of fear. And there were announcements from the coming appearances of God, forerunners that came ahead and said, fear not. Do you know why? Because they wanted the people to be able to listen to what God had to say. And if you were so afraid and so shocked at his appearance, you wouldn't be able to hear what he had to say. But by the same token, that's not our problem these days. Our problem is we don't fear anything. As a matter of fact, we have very little emotion about anything. Jonathan Edwards said that basically religion presides in the affections that we have. But when you live life by routine, your affections are put to sleep. They aren't exercised anymore. Don't you think that it would be valid for God to come and say to us, Look, 
I'm going to say the opposite to you. You better start fearing. You better start being afraid. You know, Jesus, in the 10th chapter of Matthew, said this. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. He's referring to people. He said, fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. Do you know who he was talking to? It wasn't the pagans. It was the twelve. His disciples. There's a time to be still a little bit scared that you missed hell by that far. If you're saved, I don't know whether you've ever been in a car accident before or just missed going over an embankment. But do you remember the feeling when you got out of that car and you were all right and you realized what could have happened? You were still afraid, but so glad that it didn't happen? That's how we ought to feel about getting saved. And for those of you who aren't saved yet, you're still in the skid. There were a couple of Lyman kids in a car accident last night. And I went down to see one who's still unconscious this afternoon in the hospital. And I'm taking Isaac with me because Isaac's interested in the pastorate, so I'm taking him on my rounds with me. And he knows this kid. And he went into the intensive care unit with me. And on the way back, the drive was long and silent. He said, man, it's weird to see a kid your age laying in bed like that scared him. It ought to scare us. There's a place to be scared out of the routine. Not if you're saved, still frightened of going to hell, but frightened of living like hell, which is the absence of God. Awake, sleeper. Rise from the dead, it says. This is to Christians. Don't carry on your life as if you were a robot. Do you remember Macbeth? After he had realized successfully the results of his horrible ambition, his wife now dead, he is king. And he looks back over his life and it is so empty. And he says... Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace to the last recorded syllable of time. And all of our yesterdays light the fool's way to a dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour on the stage, then is heard no more. The tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That is the routine life. And that is the life that even Christians can have if they are not alert to what is available to them. Look at the Bible with me. Look at John chapter 1. 
verse 11. Let me show you one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Now, one of the saddest is actually in verse 10. It talks about Jesus coming into the world. And it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Talking about the pagans. That's not surprising, but it is tragic, isn't it? But what is devastating is the next verse. He came to His own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Do you think that just applies to the Jews? Do you think that just applies to one time in history where a group of Jews happened to miss the one-time appearance of Jesus? I would submit to you that that happens every day in the life of Christians. He comes to his own. And his own do not receive him. Why not? Because they got their life working. Because the routine is going okay. Because they're coping. Because life is proceeding. And they don't need him. Sad. Let me read the, the second and third verses of this scripture to you. Starting with verse 15. Therefore, because of this awful life, this awful existence, not life, that can happen. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but wise, making the most of your time, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now let me explain a couple of, of these words to you in Greek. One is time. There are two basic words in Greek for time. One is chronos, and the other is kairos. Chronos simply means a steady measurement of time. There's no value to it. There's no um, good or bad. It's just segments. You know, days, weeks, months. We get the word chronology from it. It's just a measurement of time. Simple measurement. Isn't it funny to you, isn't it curious to you, that most Americans these days are on all of these health kicks so that they can add chronos to their life? extended time. What we want to do is live longer. So we're not eating fat, and we're exercising, and we're jogging. I read an article the other day. I'm a jogger. read an article the other day. drove me crazy. It was a synopsis of an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was a study of over 10,000 Harvard graduates taken over a long period of time that showed the effects of jogging on the longevity of life. And it said this. You ready for this? It said, if you begin jogging in middle age and jog faithfully for the rest of your life, what would that be, 20, 30 years? You may increase your lifespan for up to around... You ready? Ten months. Ten months. I'll spend ten months in the next 20 years lacing my shoes. Ten months. Can you believe it? It says if you start young. 
I mean, early in life, and then jog all your life. You can you can increase your life up to one to two years. You'll spend five years just on, in pain on the road if you're a jogger, won't you? I mean, joggers talk about literally. Joggers talk about hitting the wall, as if sometime before you got to the time where it were painful was actually enjoyable. I've never found that to be true. Have you? I mean, you got to know the runners. Is it, is it enjoy? For me, it's pain the whole way. I don't hit the wall. I've never hit the wall. I drag it with me the whole way. <laughs> it hurts from the very beginning for me. And I'm going to do this for 30 years and add 10 months to my life? Trying to add chronos to life is not a good bet. Redeeming the chronos is not a good bet. Now, the word in here is kairos. Kairos means the opportunity that life presents at a certain time. There is a quality here. In Galatians 4.4 4 it says, When the time had fully come, Jesus was born. There was a ripening of history. There was an opportunity that could happen there that could not happen at any other time. Of course, the rest of that study is why we all jog. Because the rest of that study said, that people who exercise have a much lower incidence of disease. Their attention span is much sharper, much longer, and so on and so forth. That's why we do it. I believe the modern popular phrase is carpe diem, seize the day. We do it so that we can see the opportunities that are available to us when they come to us. What does it mean to redeem the time? It means that you take back the attention of your life. It means you don't just exist for as long as possible. It means you look at the big picture and you sense that God is coming to you and you listen when He comes. And you, you, you take advantage of what He has. You don't just look at people anymore as the wife. She has a name. She has a personality. Now, when it says the days are evil, again, the Greek for evil here is poneros. And it means... Do you remember... It comes from, it comes from a, a, a base word, pono, which means toil. you remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the difference between work and toil. Remember, work was a wide-open effort for someone, mainly God, but also for people. You realized why you were doing something, and that made it work. That made it enjoyable. Work was a part of paradise. It was a positive thing. But toil was what? Toil was focus in a downward fashion on a task. The difference was, when, a, when Adam got out of the Garden of Eden, God said, well, you know what's going to happen? You're going you're to eat your bed by the sweat of your brow, and you will work in the land. You will toil. The word is toil. You will toil in the land, and thorns and thistles will grow, but you will, you will try to... And all of the attention was down here, trying to raise something to eat. That's the difference. When it says the days are evil, what it means is that your attention is so focused on accomplishing a task that 
The world literally steals the life out of your time. In Matthew 6, it says, you know, the healthy eye sees everything. But the bad eye makes you blind. The word for healthy is hoplos. It means generous. It means wide open. But again, the word for evil, the word for bad there, is poneros. And it means narrow, grudging. You know, when you give somebody the evil eye, you go like this. See? Your eyes get all squinted up, they get narrow. That's, that's, the, that's the thing here. And so what it's literally saying is, if you don't watch out, the world will teach you how just to pay attention to today's schedule. And get that done, and get this done, and get that done, and get this done, and you will never attach yourself again to the broader picture of abundant, meaningful life. And your, your life will have been stolen from you. Well, let me give you three ways, real quick, to redeem the time. To avoid that awful consequence. First of all, let me read to you the remaining verse of our text. It says, So then, do not be foolish. Now, the Greek is the present imperative tense. And it literally means, stop becoming foolish. In other words, we're not there yet, but we have a tendency toward it. And Jesus is holding up a big red octagonal sign saying, stop it. He's getting our attention. Stop becoming foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you stop becoming foolish so that you can redeem the time? Three ways. You got you ready for this? Way number one. You continue to have hope that God can restore your idealism. He can give you back what you've lost. I know many of you are sitting out there and saying, you know what, I don't think I can ever get that back. I've been disappointed so many times. I've lived in routine so many times. I forget what dreams are. I'm not sure I can ever... Dreams are for young people. I'm not sure I can ever get back the time I've wasted. I've wasted so much time in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. Let me show you a tremendous verse. You ready for this one? Turn to Joel, the book. Chapter 2, verse 25. You're going to love this. I love this verse. This is God talking to his people, telling them to listen and promising them what will happen if they will listen. Look at this verse. I love this verse. I love this book. It's a great book. It's the book. I love this book. God says, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Now look at this beautiful literary device of poetry and how he works this into the routine. It's like that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow passage. Look at what he does. That swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust. The stripping locust. The gnawing locust. He just goes, mm, mm, See? Routine. Shows the routine right here. In other words, there are things that can eat away your prosperity just as your time has been taken away. But God says, you know what? I can restore that time to you. 
I can restore what I originally intended for you. Don't count it as lost just because it's missing right now. Is that a great promise or what? So God wants you to have hope. God wants you to know He can restore your idealism to you. And God never wants you to give up that hope. God wants you to get excited. God wants you to have passion. One of my students, who I saw come in tonight, by the way, he's in this service. One of my students uh, at the seminary um, talked to me after class this week. And he said, uh, Joel, I'm going to be going on an internship to a church. Uh, and from all intents and from all outward appearances, this, this church is dead on the doornail. And I'm going to be ministering to the youth, and I know I'm going to be preaching some. What do you think I ought to preach? My first response was, you know, you ought to preach about revival. Just, look, there's wonderful stuff in here about revival. And then I caught myself. And I said, or, no, wait a minute. Look in here and find something that grabs you by the chest and drags you all around the chancel area and won't let you go. Preach about that. You know why? Because revival is not taught, it's caught. And when you find something in here that excites you, it's going to change your whole world, literally, and the world around you. God wants you to have passion. Second way. Realize that you have a different accounting system than the world has. Look in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. Look what it says. It says this, Praying to God, so teach us to number our days. Now, it's not talking about chronos here. It's not talking about the calendar. Anybody can do that. Day one, day two. It's not talking about that. It's talking about so that we may present to thee. It's talking about Kairos. So that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Please realize that your life will be reviewed on the basis of what you have presented to God. Please understand that. I was driving someplace very late at night to... Uh, very late at night for me. I'm kind of an early bird. It was like 10.30 or 11. I can't remember. And and had on uh, uh, 90.7, the, the public broadcasting station. And they were uh, having a report on how Germans pay their taxes. This is around April 15th. And I kind of enjoy this, you know, cross-cultural kind of trivia. And so I was listening. It was very interesting. Well, in Germany, they have state-supported churches. And so you support your church through your taxes. And it's not um, voluntary, it's mandatory. There's a certain... And you, you tell what church you support and they take the taxes out of your... And it said, well, you know, now, many young German people are repudiating their faith because that's the only way you can get out of paying that tax is you've got to repudiate your faith. So they're repudiating the faith and keeping their money. It was talking about taxes and about getting audited and all that kind of stuff. Now listen to what it said. I could not believe it said this on PBS. It said, however, in doing so, they may face 
another kind of audit. Can you believe it said that? In doing so, they may face another kind of audit, the mercy of which will be debated long after their tax bill has been paid. Can you believe that? I want you to know the same thing. We face a different kind of audit. And our days are numbered according to that audit. Realize that and it'll take, it'll put a lot of passion back into your routine. Now, the third thing that I want you to do is not only do I want you to say, I can get passion back in my life for the right thing. Not for the lustful things, not for the flesh things, but for the right things. I can. God can restore that time to me. That time when I was a dreamer. That time when I was an idealist. And not only do I want you to get out of bed every morning and say, God, you gave me this day. You gave it to me for a reason. This day counts. I'm numbering this day for you. There's a reason for this day. But also, look to the future. Don't just look to your daily calendar to see what you've got on. Look to the future. See what God has for you. And what kind of a Christian you could be in 10 or 20 years. What kind of world you could make in 10 or 20 years. You know the giants of the faith? That's exactly what they did. Turn to Hebrews chapter chapter 11. I'm, I'm almost done. Hebrews 11. Verse 13. Love this book. I love it. Look at verse 8. This is so cool. It's talking about the giants of the faith. It says, All of these died in faith without receiving the promises. Now, when it says that, without receiving the promises, is what it means is those promises did not, did not come during those daily calendar sessions. They weren't on the schedule. They never saw them in the schedule and say, Ooh, man, that's great. I'm putting this down in my journal. A promise came. But look at what it says. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, those men possessed those promises because they had welcomed them into their lives even though they were still in the future. Do you know how great it is to live according to a dream that is not yet realized, but it will be someday? Whether you ever live to see it or not, you are living according to a vision. That's abundant life. Just having a vision, not living in a world of your own where the visions don't come very often. 1 Samuel 3 says this. You know, it says when Samuel went to, went to be with Eli, it says in those days, word from the Lord were rare and visions were infrequent. 1 Samuel 3.1. Sad. Could I ask you about your life? Is word from the Lord rare? Are visions infrequent? God wants you to have a vision for your life. And He can give you a vision for your life. And you can live according to that vision. 
You know, when Disney World, I, I, I'll stop now. When Disney World was completed, Walt Disney, of course, had died several years earlier. And on the opening day, Mike Vance, who is the director of creative services, or creative, uh, the, the creative director of Disney Studios, was answering questions from the press. And the inevitable question came, isn't it too bad that Walt Disney never lived to see this? And Mike Vance responded, oh, but he did see it. That's why it's here. See it, Christian. God, whoever that person is in here tonight, they feel drawn by your spirit. They want this so much. They even want it enough to give control of their life over to you. They know that's the cost. Let them pray this prayer with me. God, I've lived apart from you. And I don't want to anymore. I know that nothing will come right until I have you as my Lord. I accept the forgiveness that you gave to me by dying on Calvary. I accept that you have taken away my sins.